would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, where we'll be giving consideration to this last section of chapter 1, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. If you had your Greek Bibles in front of you, uh, even if you didn't read Greek, you could look back up at verses 3 through 14, and you could tell there that it is one lengthy sentence in the original Greek text, what we could sort of call a, a super sentence by Paul, in which he goes on and on throughout this section of Ephesians about the glorious riches of the gospel as he unpacks for us what it means as God's people to be in union with Christ, helping us grow to understand our identity as God's people. And it's in that one sort of super sentence that we see this very important connection in God's word between theology and worship. It's a theme that runs throughout the book of Ephesians and, of course, much broader than that. We could say it's a connection between the knowledge of God, who he is and what he's done for us through the work of his son and hearts that on our part in response at every point ought to be given over to him in worship, in love and in service. Someone has said that worship in the Christian life is sort of like an overarching umbrella that encompasses everything in the Christian life. That as we grow to understand the centrality of Christ in all things, that our life becomes more and more oriented around this deep and rich and glorious truth. For it is worship in the Christian life that really sets the heart and therefore sets everything else in life. There really is no other proper response to the gospel to the nature of the gospel than hearts and lives that are given over to the Lord in worship, in adoration, in service, in love for God and neighbor. Now, Paul's desire here for the church as an apostle, as one who speaks by divinely appointed authority, is that our hearts as God's people would be captivated by the amazing plan of redemption in Christ. And that again, as our hearts are filled more and more with joy, with awe, with love, that the outflow of those things would in our life be increased trust, hope, and endurance as God's covenant people. In fact, Paul goes through great lengths through these first three chapters of Ephesians to unpack for us the indicatives of the Christian life. That is who we are as God's people because of divine election. Who we are as his people as a result of his sovereign grace that is intruded into our lives. Verse after verse, he writes in these chapters, helping us to understand just some of the benefits that are ours in the Lord Jesus. And this focus of Christian identity culminates at the end of chapter 3. If you look at verse 20, the way that he puts it there, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's almost as if Paul is saying here at the end of this extensive thought process, it's almost as if he's saying that words simply cannot capture the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And you see, it's a love of God that is very personal in nature. It's a love of God for you in Christ Jesus. 
an intimate and special love for his called out chosen people. Back in chapter 1 in verse 9, Paul calls the work of Christ a mystery. When you think of a mystery, think of something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And when Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, he's saying here is something that has been unfolding in history for hundreds of years. But in these last times, through the actual earthly ministry of Christ, this mystery is revealed. Now you can see clearly what was before veiled, what was there sort of in shadow form, sort of hidden from sight, is now made abundantly clear. And part of that great mystery is that we, an undeserving people from all of the nations of the world, would be brought in to God's family, that we would be included in his plan of redemption, that when Jesus Christ was there upon the cross, that he had a particular people in mind, that you and I were in his heart and mind as he died for us, a special people who would be recipients of his grace. You see, Christ died not simply to make salvation a possibility for some, but he died to make the salvation of his elect people a reality. And this is a mystery that is now revealed, now made known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's this mystery of the gospel that Paul continues now to unpack for us in this last section of chapter 1. In verses 15 through 23, we actually come to Again, if you had your Greek Testaments open, another super long sentence, one sentence in the original Greek in which Paul continues to delight in the glorious nature of the gospel in which he is overwhelmed by God's graciousness in redeeming helpless and hopeless sinners. So let's give our attention now to these verses from God's word, beginning in verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, if we keep the context of Paul's letter in mind, he is, of course, as the letter says, writing to the church in Ephesus. But he writes not only to that particular church in mind, but most scholars would agree that he's writing to other surrounding churches there in Asia Minor, who, uh, as he writes, would be in his mind as recipients of this letter. But he's writing to believers who live within a community that is opposed to the message of Christ. And even though members of the early church in this time in history would be severely outnumbered, despite being uh, Christians who are a very small minority in the community in which they live, Paul is greatly encouraged by them for two reasons. And we see those two reasons in verse 15. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. 
Let's look at each of those. First, their faith in Christ is being made evident. Now, Paul does not elaborate on the particulars of how their faith is being made evident, but I think it's safe for us to assume that it's a faith that is being made evident in the midst of trials, of hardships, of even conflict and discouragement in life. And I think it's safe to assume those things because those are things that all of God's people experience at one time in their life to varying degrees. And so in your own life, think for just a moment about how you typically respond to hardships, to trials, to failed expectations. When perhaps others in your life, family or co-workers or neighbors just get in the way of your desires. Perhaps when physical ailments begin to creep into your life and they just don't seem to resolve themselves as quickly as they used to. Or when you face uncertainty in your job or in school, or any other number of things as you look to the future. When circumstances are not all that they are supposed to do, how often do we tend to respond in grumbling and complaining, perhaps with increased levels of anxiety and fear and worry? Or, like the church in Ephesus, is your faith in Christ made evident in such circumstances of life? Is there instead a joy-filled delight In God's providence, is there trust in him because your perspective is completely different, not one that is self-centered, but rather one that is Christ-centered. And so the way that we respond to our circumstances can be one example of a way in which our faith is made evidence to the watching world. Perhaps another way that their faith was made evident was in their application of grace and forgiveness. In other words, faith can be evident in the way in which we deal with sin as it is exposed, the way in which we deal with sin as it is exposed in the lives of others around us, perhaps the way that we deal with sin as it is exposed in our own lives. Are we filled, as I typically am myself, with guilt or perhaps defensiveness when our sin is made evident to us? Or are we living with confident freedom, believing in the word of God, Believing that all of our sin, past, present, and future, is atoned for. Are we regularly applying the forgiveness of Christ? Each morning when we have our corporate confession of sin, of course, it is followed by that assurance of pardon. Various scripture passages throughout the pages of God's word that remind us, that speak to us of this great assurance that is ours in Christ. And so when we hear from God's word, that assurance of pardon, are we choosing to live by faith, believing that we have that forgiveness? To have faith means that you are growing to trust in the Lord and such trust is made evident in your life. Well, the other reason that Paul is encouraged as he hears of the church in Ephesus is again in verse 15, because of their love toward all the saints, love toward one another, which is, again, visibly evident. And we could think of all of the different ways, perhaps, in which love could be made evident amongst a local community. Love would be apparent as we help one another when needs arise, as we speak the truth and love to one another and about one another, as we care for one another and pray for each other, as we share in the burdens that we experience in this life. As we rejoice together in God's goodness together, love being made evident, you see, in very tangible ways. 
And so really we could say that these things, faith and love, you see, is evidence of genuine conversion, evidence of what it means to be in the Lord Jesus, evidence of what it means to be God's people. Faith, you see, being made evident in your trust and confidence and hope and love being displayed in your relationships with one another. We see this connection in other places of Scripture. In 1 John chapter 4, for example, in verse 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And notice John's logic here. You can profess with your lips that you believe in the gospel You can say that you trust in Christ, but what he presses his reader to give consideration to is how is that reflected in your life? Are you filled with distrust of others? Are you perhaps hateful in your use of words towards friends or family? What would those who know you best say about you when trials come in life? Do you display an attitude of defiance or disrespect towards those authorities that God in his providence has placed over you. John and Paul are both saying that you cannot cannot have both of these things. You cannot claim to have faith in Christ and not have love toward one another. And so there's this essential connection between faith in Christ and love for one another. Sinclair Ferguson sums it up like this. He says, authentic Christianity always transforms both the Godward and the manward dimensions of life. And this, again, is exactly what Paul is getting at here, that it's the gospel, authentic Christianity that transforms, you see, faith, that vertical dimension, that Godward dimension and love, that manward, that horizontal dimension as it's displayed in our relationships with one another. And so as Paul hears of their faith, And as he hears of their love toward one another, his heart is stirred to pray for them. I do not cease to give thanks for you, he says in verse 16, remembering you in my prayers. In other words, every time I go to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer, I give him thanks for you. And here are the things that I pray for. And then he goes on to give us a glimpse of the content of his prayer for the church. As we think about the way that Paul prays for the church, we could say, well, this is a way that we can grow in our own understanding of what prayer should look like in our own lives. Now, before we look at the content of Paul's prayer, give yourself just sort of a a quick evaluation of your own prayer life for a moment. Think for just a moment about the things that typically dominate the things that you pray to the Lord about. No doubt the vast majority of our time that we spend in prayer could fit within a category of what we could sort of call circumstantial prayers, namely that we want God to change our circumstances. And that it isn't inherently a bad thing. For those who are ill, we pray that there would be recovery. For those that go through suffering, when suffering comes into our own life, we pray that those periods of suffering would be alleviated. We ask the Lord for safety as we travel on our family vacations, acknowledging that his providence extends over every aspect of life. For those family members who do not know Christ, it is right and appropriate to pray that they would come to faith in Christ. These are all fine things to pray for. But as we look at the content of Paul's prayer, I think there's a challenge here for us. You see, the people that Paul prays for, 
are, again, people just like us, people who are going through trials and failures and sufferings. And yet his prayer is not that their circumstances change, you see, but rather that they would come to a greater understanding of the riches of the gospel. You see, he prays that the church would be overwhelmed, not overwhelmed by their circumstances, but overwhelmed with the gospel. And so as you think of your own prayers, ask yourself, am I treating God as sort of an errand boy to fulfill my desires? Or do I pray that I would see my sin more clearly? Do I pray that I would grow to hate it more deeply? Do I pray that God's people would grow in their love for Christ? If my prayers are just about external things, then as David Pallison points out, perhaps over time I begin to think of God as more and more detached from my life, unconcerned or perhaps uninvolved in real heart-level change. Instead, what we see in Paul in his prayer here is what we could call a kingdom-focused prayer. He is focused upon the glories of Christ, and there is deep heartfelt concern for the church that they would grow more and more to understand the riches of the gospel. In Paul's prayer, notice the first thing that he does is he starts with a posture of thanksgiving in verse 16. As he gives thanks to the Lord for them, what he is doing, you see, is he's acknowledging that any level of growth that he sees within the church is the result of God's faithfulness being displayed in their life. When their faith is being made evident to a watching world or when their love toward one another is made evident, this is evidence of God's spirit actively working among the local church. I was thinking this past week about the many ways in which the work of God's spirit has been evidenced in the lives of others within our congregation just over this past year. As Pastor McWilliams and I visited with Freddie Carter in her last few weeks, there was displayed in her life such love for the Lord Jesus Christ, such trust that she was exactly where he had her to be at that point in her life, that where she was, even in the midst of all of her suffering, was part of God's eternal purpose for her. And as we sat with Vince in his last few days, singing hymns of praise together with his family, there was such a delight even in the midst of pain and suffering of his union with Christ and such great confidence that he is a child of God. And as we talk with Ronnie Boutwell and the trials continue to come in his life, there is such trust and joy and love to the Lord that is so unnatural that it can only come from the spirit of Christ himself. And in each of these lives of our covenant family members, The great thing, you see, is that none of them would point to their own maturity. None of them would claim that they have some special insight. None of them take credit for the joy and the trust and the confident hope that is displayed in their lives. Instead, they are filled with thanks to their God, knowing that his activity among God's people is being made evident in their lives. It's evidence of what we read in Jeremiah chapter 9, where the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so when we see trials enter into the lives of those in our congregation, and they respond with great confidence, with joy, with trust, it is right and it is appropriate for us to give thanks. Again, not to give thanks to them, for that's not even what they would want, but rather to give thanks to God for such evidence of his gracious involvement in our lives. Well, from there, after setting the tone with a spirit of thankfulness and love for God's people, Paul moves on to mention specifically three petitions that he prays for the church for. The first petition we see in verses 17 and beginning of verse 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Well, what is Paul asking God for here? What is he praying for in this petition for the church? Well, namely that they would grow in their understanding of Scripture, that God would wake us up to know him, to know him more as our king and as our savior and as our heavenly father. I love this imagery that Paul uses here, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that the darkness that so easily tends to blind would be removed so that we might see more clearly. See, think of it like this. You can read these words on the pages of Scripture. You can understand the grammar and you can have a great deal of knowledge about ancient Near Eastern history and culture. But until the eyes of your heart are opened, you are missing something. Because it's not a matter of seeing simply facts before you, but it's understanding the implications of those facts. William Wilberforce tells the story of attending worship one Sunday morning, inviting a friend to attend with him, a friend who did not know Christ, but one who by Wilberforce's own admission farly surpassed him greatly in his education, in his intellectual abilities. As Wilberforce sat in worship with his faith again renewed, Uh, Focusing upon the glories of Christ, the truth of God's word was proclaimed and his heart was filled um, over and again with joy and with trust and with hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after the worship service, Wilberforce was anxious to talk to his friend about what was preached from God's word, about the truth and the clarity of the gospel. And yet on his way out, his friend admitted to him, I tried to follow the preacher. I listened to the things that he said. But I just had no idea what he was talking about. See, if you hear of the good news of the gospel, and if you fail to see the relevance of God's word for your life, if you understand that Christ rose from the dead, but struggle to get why that's so important for you, if there's no love for God and love for others, then your vision is hazy at best, and you have yet to see clearly And you need the eyes of your heart opened. Perhaps you say such things to yourself as this. Well, yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but I've got bills to pay. I believe that God is who he says he is, but you have no idea how hard my life is. Yes, there's the Lord Jesus. Yes, there's the gospel. Yes, there is a sovereign God, but 
those things just don't meet me where I am. They don't fit my particular struggles. You see, when we begin to think in that manner, we again and again need the eyes of our hearts opened. Turn, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 1. And notice here the way that Peter captures this imagery of our tendency toward blurred vision. Beginning in verse 3, he writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we think about our own lives, there are certainly times in our life in which life itself sort of seems to derail us. And we have a tendency toward forgetfulness, toward blindness, toward nearsightedness, where all we see are those presenting problems that are right in front of us, stress and anxiety and pain and conflict and uncertainty. And all those things tend to rob us of joy and trust and faith and hope. See, one of our biggest problems in life is that we simply do not have an accurate vision. We don't see ourselves truly as we are. We don't see the world correctly. We don't see the activity of our Lord in the world the way in which we ought. And our vision of ourselves and our true condition is so distorted that we convince ourselves that we have no problem at all. You see, if you don't acknowledge this tendency towards nearsightedness and towards blindness, that's a good sign that your vision is still blurry. You're not going to see correctly with new eyes until you first acknowledge you have a tendency within your heart toward pride and arrogance, which is causing you to be hazy in the first place. And so if this is a universal and ongoing condition, you see, that we need the heart, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, well, what do we need? We don't need some new technique. We don't need to have some better coping mechanism. What we need is to see that which is already supplied to us. As Paul says, we need the spirit of wisdom. We need the knowledge of God. We need to see more clearly what's already before us. We need the truth of God's word to bear more and more upon our hearts and our minds. And when you see differently, you begin to interpret differently. You act differently. You think differently. And this is really what Paul is striving, striving to help the church in Ephesus to see. 
What his prayer for them is, is that they would begin to see all of life through the lenses of their sovereign, good, loving, and purposeful God. To see with eyes that understand who we are as his covenant people. To see with eyes that are more concerned with God's purposes in life rather than my own. And when we see with new eyes, when we see through the lens of what Christ has done for us, we grow more to understand what we are living for and what we are called to be as God's people. And so real and lasting change means turning away from a false interpretation of reality and turning toward the Lord, turning toward our Savior in greater trust, fear, and obedience. And as we turn from the self to Him, we begin to understand more and more that it is our relationship with God that ought to define every facet of our life. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this in commenting on verses 17 through 19. He says, Are you a miserable, unhappy Christian, feeling that the fight is too much for you? And are you on the point of giving up and giving in? What you need is to know the power that is working mightily for you. The same power that brought Christ from the dead. What we need primarily is not an experience, but to realize what we are and who we are. What God has done in Christ and the way he has blessed us. We fail to realize our privileges. Our greatest need is still the need of understanding. You see, if Paul prays this petition every time that he prays for the church in Ephesus, that they would grow in their understanding of who the Lord is and what he's done for us, then obviously it's a continuing presenting problem in the life of the church, in the life of ourselves, the life of the church today, that we need more and more to understand the greatness of who the Lord is and what he has done for us. And notice his second petition in verse 18. That you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That they might know the future, you see. That they might know more that hope, that heavenly inheritance that is awaiting them. Think of it like this. This illustration works a little bit better if you're in high school or middle school. So imagine for a moment that uh, you're a bit younger perhaps than you are. You're hearing constantly about the instability of the economy around you. You become more and more anxious as you get closer to graduation. What am I going to study? What sort of job will I have when I graduate? How will I know that there'll be any sort of stability for me once I'm done? How am I going to provide for a family? Things just seem horrible. Then one day you get home and you see an envelope on the counter for you. And you open it up. You begin to read And on the letter inside, you discover that your great aunt has passed. You didn't know her very well, but she always said you were her favorite. And she's left you her entire inheritance, which it turns out is quite substantial. And the entire inheritance becomes yours as soon as you turn 21. Now, it's not yours yet. You can't go to the bank and you can't draw upon it. But immediately, your disposition changes. It doesn't matter what the economy does. You'll never have to worry about that again. It doesn't matter what you study because this inheritance will take care of it all. Even though the actual possession of that inheritance is yet future, you see it's already completely changing everything about your life in the present. 
Because in a sense, it already is yours and you possess it now. You see, as Paul prays for the church, he is praying that we might see more clearly what lies ahead for us. And he wants us to understand that it's a future reality, but it's something that intrudes into the present because we possess it even now. He wants the church to go to understand that this is not some remote and detached aspect of Christian living. This is not some vague thing that lies out there somewhere in the distance, but it's this future heavenly inheritance that shapes and defines who you are as God's people. It's a calling that's already ours. It's a hope that we possess already, a glorious inheritance that he's already spoken of earlier in this letter. In verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, been predestined according to his eternal purposes. And in verse 14, the Holy Spirit, you see, is the deposit of this inheritance, that guarantee that it is to come in the future. Turn again to Peter, this time to 1 Peter. A text that Pastor Williams read from this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we hear these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And lastly, back in Ephesians, in chapter 1, we have the third petition that Paul offers on behalf of the church. And that is that they would know the power of God that is at work within them. You see that in verses 19 through 23. And here, Paul's prayer for the church is that they would come to a greater understanding of God's power at work within them. Power which was displayed in the earthly ministry of Christ, which is now at work within. Notice the way that Paul moves from praying this petition for them to praise and adoration as he delights in the authority and the lordship of Christ. Listen, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so here in these last verses of this chapter, we see Paul return to this great theme that runs again as this thread underneath everything that he writes, and that is union with Christ. We are to derive comfort because of the power of the Spirit of Christ, something that we already possess. So there's no place in the Christian life for hopelessness. We can never say that, well, that's just the way that I am. There's no changing me. I'm just sort of set in my ways. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is at work within us. You can never say the gospel is insufficient or it is detached from my life. 
Because the victory of Christ over death means that all sin is defeated and that all sin can be mortified in our own lives. Notice here that Paul is not praying that the church would have more power, but rather that they would come to know the greatness of the power of God that is already working within them. As we read in 1 John chapter 4, He who is in you is greater than him who is in the world. Someone has said in summing up this section of Ephesians chapter 1, our greatest need is to know these truths. We all need to look again at this glorious revelation and to be delivered from our morbid preoccupation with ourselves. And so the raising of Jesus from the dead that Paul talks about here you see, is proof positive and absolute that even that last enemy has been defeated and conquered. And that leads to such a great confidence, such great assurance on our part as God's people that we are His. You see, the implication of this great power at work within us is that there is nothing greater than our Savior. There is no power that can overthrow His purposes. There is nothing that can stand against Him. What great hope! What great comfort, what great assurance and confidence is ours because of these things. Again, in closing, let me read once again from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes, Whatever may be true of our experience, whatever may be true of the world and its darkness, whatever may be true of the seeds of decay and of illness, and of death that are in our bodies, and howsoever great is the power of the last enemy, we can be certain and confident of this, that nothing can prevent the carrying out of God's purpose with respect to us. There is no power that can withstand him. There is no might or influence that can match him. There is no possible antagonist that can equal him. The mightiest foes, the devil, death, and hell have already been vanquished. And the resurrection of Christ is the proof of it. Let's pray together. Our great Lord and Savior, we give you thanks for your work on earth and on the cross on our behalf. We give you thanks for the work of your Spirit among us, O Lord, for the many ways, tangible ways, in which we see your faithfulness to us. And we pause for just a moment to give you thanks. And, O Lord, we pray that you would grow us as your people to a greater and greater understanding of your divine nature, of your characteristics, of your good attributes, that our response would be one of increased trust and hope, knowing that that inheritance that is purchased for our Savior for us is something that is sure and certain that nothing Nothing can snatch us from your hands, as we heard from your word this morning from Matthew 10. Lord, we are grateful for the power of your Spirit, which is at work within us. May we grow in grateful obedience and in delight, in hope and in confidence, in trust, knowing that you are ours and that we are yours. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.